Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 367 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre. I'm also your co-host with Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of The Firestar, a Maven and Reeve mystery, and also many, many other books. How are you, Al? <laughs> many, many other books. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fair to middling. I'm coping. I'm rapidly approaching the end of the school year and quite oh, excited yeah. about that. Uh, and, yeah, just sort of, you know, just doing our stuff. What about you? What are you up to? What am I up to? I still haven't really ventured into the, you know, normal life yet. And I find that if I, you know, just go to the local shops, um, that tires me out. <laughs> I know. It's, it's quite bizarre. It is really bizarre. We went to a shopping centre. Like, take a mm. deep breath. We went to a shopping yeah. centre last week for the first time since, I reckon, January. I, I wow. just haven't been. Because we don't. We kind of have to travel to go to a decent-sized shopping centre. So mm. we went because um, the builder required shoes that he could not find, you know, in my yes. local area. So off we went and we walked in and I was just, you know, I mean I've never loved a shopping centre but mm. having not been in one for so long, I was quite overwhelmed by the whole thing and I just thought mm. we're all turning into hermits. Like we've forgotten yeah. what to – we've forgotten how to do stuff I think, haven't we? Totally. I've completely forgotten how to do stuff. I need a nap when I come back. I saw your cronut <laughs> shop. Your cronut <gasps> shop is closed or something. I, did, I saw an, a distressed social distressed. media post. Like, Talk me through it. It's worse What's than happened? closed. Okay. <clears throat> they have not closed. They're still open, but oh. they've chosen not to make any more cronuts before, uh, you know, for 2020. I know. Oh, they just cut you off. They've just like, we're cancelling. Yeah. We're can yeah. Why? Why did that? Did you ask why? Surely you did. Well, I would ordinarily, but they're very unusual <laughs> people. Can you just and, remind um, me what a cronut is? What is it again? Well, I think, well, it's some this delicious ball of magic that sends right. you to heaven. Yeah, basically. okay. But what's it's what? Covered like, in it's a, sugar. It's obviously a donut mixed with a what? Well, I think it might be a croissant donut, but I don't really see too much croissant in there. But the way, but it's it's just the most divine thing ever, especially when this place makes it. But they are a little bit eccentric, this place. And yes, they've ju they've just chosen to make twenty twenty the worst year ever um, by cancelling cronuts. By cancelling cronuts. So I don't well, know. Well, I'm devastated how I for you. Like I can, you know, I can see how that would just be the icing on the cake of a. <laughs> really ordinary year like it's just like if you can't even get your treat like but my interesting no. thing here would be would you go the cronut as a reward a writing reward over the banoffee do you do that or not uh you better actually, explain okay for new listeners so the banoffee is definitely a reward and once I've achieved some you know, mini or major project, not too mini, not like a task, like it has to be a proper project, I will go the banoffee. The this being banoffee pie for those who are not pie. regular regular listeners yes. of Val's dessert choices. Yes, and which are very important to the world of writing or my world of writing because yes. I use them as incentives. But yes. the cronut is a slightly different level. The cronut is um, when you achieve kind of like quite a number of tasks. However, you would think, okay, well, you'd be eating cronuts every second day, right? But no, because it is so intermittent when they produce, when they decide to produce these cronuts that it, you're just kind of rationed by accident anyway, <laughs> by their whims. Well, so maybe they're you're just not, looking out for you so that you well, don't end up looking like a cronut. Well, th there's that, there's that. Mm. So there's no real danger of ODing on the cronuts simply because of supply. But mm. um yeah, I use that as a as a as a reward still, but just a different level reward. And for me, rewards when it comes to getting your work done, getting the words on the page, are a very big thing. Mm. Mm. I'm at the point now where I'm just currently rewarding myself with a good lie down and a cup of tea. Like, <laughs> <you know. laughs> well, I have those two and the cronut. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Cronuts taste great with ca- tea. Mm. All right. We should. Oh, you know what? I do have some exciting. I did have oh, a moment yes. of excitement this morning. I started my day in a very cheerful way when the children's bookshop, um, Paul and Beth McDonald at the children's bookshop, oh, yes. named the Fire Star, a Maven and Reeve mystery, as one of their top six middle grade books <gasps> of the whole year. That's exciting. It is exciting. And That's in other fantastic. exciting news, um, Sue Whiting, who is another uh presenter at the Australian Writers' Centre, her book, The Book of Chance, was also on that list. So we were having a, oh, wow. a mini little high-five moment there on Facebook together. But, yeah, that was that was a really nice way to start the day was to, you know, it's it's always, you know, it's one of those things where you you kind of like making a little list, like making a list like that just gives you that little bit of boom, you know. Okay, yeah. that's right. So I, I did have to post a photo of myself on Instagram signing books yesterday just to remind myself that I had written a book because yes. I think sometimes when you you get so mired in everyday life and managing, you know, kids, let's face it, mostly kids at the moment for me just because of the end of the year, mm. um, you just you can kind of forget that you that you do these things. So I just popped it up there to remind myself. Yes. Now, yes, in case there are some new listeners, what's the book about? Oh, the book is uh, The Firestar, A Maven and Reeve Mystery, and it is a medieval-style mystery adventure novel about Maven, a maid, and Reeve, a squire, who have to band together to find a dazzling jewel of incalculable value or lose everything. So cool. um, it's a big puzzle. And uh, there's a lot going on, as is often the case in my books. Um, so it's brilliant that, um, you know, that it's, it's, it was just such a nice thing to see it on that list this morning. I was chuffed. Now, regular listeners will know that we, you know, went along the journey with Al as this book was birthed. Are you still in recovery? <laughs> Um, to a degree, I have started thinking about a new project. You might remember last week I was like, I'm never writing anything again because <laughs> I'm too tired and I can't think straight. Yeah. Um, so I'm still, uh, so Maven and Reeve 2, title mm. still to be decided for those playing along at home, um, is, is uh, I'm waiting for the structural edit on that and that will be kind of a long, I would say, any minute now. Uh, so I was kind of like putting off thinking about too much else until I did that. But then it hasn't arrived so I have begun just kind of playing with a bit of an idea that I that I had thought of. Um, mm. So I might start doing something probably not until not really I, I'll think about it between now and January and then maybe I'll start thinking maybe I'll start writing something then. Um, but yeah, it's kind of like it's nice to be back at least thinking about the fact that I might feel like writing again one day. That's that's a good feeling. Yeah, right. So you are mm. coming out of it, you know, out of your I think so. I, yeah. look, I you know, I think the thing is that um uh, as I was discussing with my, my husband the other day, I, you know, I've been very, I've worked very, very hard for many, many years now. I've really pushed many, many yeah. years now. And I think I just got to the, I think it's probably because of 2020 as well. Um, I just sort of got to the sort of end of that, of the process of, of the first Maven and Reeve and having written the second one. And I just thought, you know what, I just really need a rest. I, mm. I, and I think I just needed to give my brain a bit of space. Um, there's been a lot going on, you know, here as well. And I just sort mm. of like sometimes you need a little bit more brain space than you've got to write something. So I, I just mm. decided I, instead of pushing my way through it like I normally do, I just decided I would have a bit of a rest. And that's it, it seems to have worked well because I do feel a lot more cheerful about starting something new than I did even last week. So. Did you fill in your time with anything in particular? Uh, I've been, well, I did because I'm I'm still busy. Like I'm still, you know, Mm. teaching and I'm still working on other things and I'm still, um, I've been, I've been doing, uh, so I've been reading a lot. Um, I have been, I've actually watched, started watching a couple of things on Netflix, which as you know, I'm usually like at least six months behind with all that stuff. Um, I've been doing a lot of work on my website, um, Mm. the back end of my website, because we talked about this when I was kind of getting the redesign done a few months ago, um, at alisontate.com. If you haven't been to have a look at it, I got this great redesign done and it's been really, really good. And I've noticed a huge, um, there's been a lot more traffic to my website uh, since I had the redesign done, and I think it's because of the search engine optimization and a few oh. other things that have happened. But the, the traffic has quadrupled to that website. Wow. Yeah, I'm serious. Like I, I am astounded and astonished. Wow. Um, so I decided that I would 
you know, make the effort of actually working through the back end of that website and, and I'm deleting stuff that's not relevant anymore. I'm working on the search engine optimization for the posts that I have. I had 11, nearly 1,200 blog posts on that blog. Oh, my um, God. I know it's a lot of blog posts and there's a lot of stuff from the earlier days of my blog that's just not relevant anymore. Like I had the, um, I ran a book club through there and all that kind of stuff and none of that stuff is actually um, useful. So I'm just trying to make it as kind of streamlined as I possibly can. And also there's so much information in the yes. on the site. I wanted to give it, you know, all of it the best possible chance to, to be you know, to be found and to be, you know, to, to be useful to people. So that's what I'm doing. I'm sort of working through all that stuff. I'm trying to make the most, that's what I'm probably doing, trying to make mm. the most of what I already have um, before I think about what the next thing is that I might do. That's, I guess that's where I'm at. That's a really good approach because often we get um, attracted by bright, shiny objects Yeah. and go, oh, we need to do this. We need this app. We need to try this um, as authors. But uh, making the most of what all you already have, I think that's that's going to be my theme for this week. Al, thanks for, thanks oh, for that. Oh, that's totally fine. But, you know, the mm. thing is I have been blogging for 10 years mm. this year and having been blogging for 10 years, the evolution of my blog has been such a, you know, a slow and gradual process. I've never actually looked at it as a consolidated thing and thought mm. how do I best maximise all of this content that I have here. And there is a lot of content there. So, you know, hopefully it'll kind of just, I don't know, I'll put it this way, I feel a lot better about the fact that I'm actively doing something useful for mm. with, with stuff that I already have. I'm very yeah. happy with it. Yeah. Definitely. I've written that down. I love that. All right. Speaking of blogs, um, there is a great post actually on the Australian Writers' Centre blog called Second Draft Syndrome. 10 tips for editing your own work. And I think that this is a really good one because so many people, I was talking to someone literally the other day who had only written their first draft and was like ready to send it to publishers. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> if you've mm. only written one draft, there's a lot, I have no doubt, even without reading it, that there's a lot of room for improvement. Mm. And so it's so vital. Um, some people, you know, do three or four drafts. Some people do 30 drafts. So, you know, but one draft is, uh, unless you're an absolute genius, one draft is typically not going to cut it. So, in this post, um, some really good tips. Number one, and this is a, a key one, is you've got to take a break because you need to look at your draft, your manuscript with fresh eyes, right? Mm, so right. it's absolutely vital. Now, that break is different for different people. Some people it's a month. Some people it's six months. Mm. Some people take longer. Um, but it is very important because you need to – you're just too close to it. Even short things that I write, sometimes when I read them again, sure, I can make improvements here and there. But – and I think that they've they've done the trick. Um, but I'm just too close to actually see all of the things that may be wrong with it. But if I come back to it three weeks later, suddenly I'm seeing all these things. Oh, my God, how did you – Leave that in, mm. you know. Mm. So very important. Um, another one which I think is um, underrated and under, underutilised is it's absolutely worth printing out your manuscript. I know yep. some people Definitely. don't have printers. Which... I, I take mine to Officeworks and print it. Yes. This is not a sponsored tweet, not a sponsored <laughs> post, not a sponsored conversation, but I take it to my nearest and I print. Mm. I print the whole thing. Always. Yes. I, I just think you, you read differently on paper than you read on the screen um, and you get a better sense and you can scribble all over it, which is essential. Yeah, essential, yeah. absolutely essential. But there are many um, things in here. Another one that I think is a good one is um, ignore your first chapter. Now, what that means is, well, basically it says it's a good idea to recognise that your first chapter is probably going to change a lot you may even end up cutting it entirely. In fact, that's almost something that you sometimes do, right, Al? 
Yes. Not your first chapter, but the first bit because you write your way into the story yeah I I um so usually by the time so I find it an interesting thing because you start your story you don't really know where you need to start your story until you finish your story if you work the way that I work um and by the time you've finished your story you'll have a pretty solid idea of whether you've started in the right place or not and uh, so it's it's only in the second draft that I can kind of have another look at it and think actually I don't need the first 5,000 words or whatever it may be. Um, And you have to get ruthless about Mm. what you do need and what you don't. Um, And I've got a lot better at this as I've gone along my, you know, the first time. It's interesting because the first book I, uh, a novel for children I wrote, the Mapmaker Chronicles um, Race to the End of the World, that first chapter didn't change. It's really interesting. That first chapter did not change like like it was minimal changes to that um, from the start, from the first draft to the to the published book. But every other book that I have ever written, the first chart, the first chapter has been through many, many different kind of like variations before I have been happy to submit it even to my publisher. Um, mm. So it's it, you can't get wed to those opening lines, and it's one of the. But I I think it's actually really freeing to know that because it mm. means that. You, they don't have to be perfect. So you can just start writing. And I think once you let go of that idea that that opening has to be perfect and polished and amazing in that first draft, it yeah. is it frees you up just to keep going. And then you might realise, you know, once you read back over it, that actually your brilliant opening is actually the start of Chapter 2. Yes. <laughs> or, mm. or some such thing. Um, but mm. you won't really know that until you've written the whole first draft and you won't definitely won't know it until you have um, put your first draft aside and then you read the whole first draft as Mm. a reader not as a writer and you read it for story you read it for the structure Um, and that's a different read to when you read it for you know copy editing or proofreading this is not you know grammar this is not you know, have I got the full stops in the right place? This is going through it, reading through it and making notes. I, like, I mean, we say in this post not to make notes, but I always make notes, making mm. notes of what happens in each chapter and what needs to happen. And, and, mm. and as you go through, you'll have ideas that might come out as you're going through chapter five of something that you actually really need to put into chapter one as a seeding yes. thing for what's going to happen. So you read for struck, you read for story and, yes. um, because that structural aspect of it is really like is what your second draft is all about, yes. is, is getting that bit right. And after that, read it out loud, which is also one of the tips. Yeah. Um, when you've kind of polished it a bit, read it out loud because when you do read something out loud, out loud you will stumble across the phrases or certain bits of syntax that don't quite work, which kind of look fine on the page, but when you read them out loud, you kind of notice that something yeah. needs to change there and then you've got to think about, well, what is it that's not working? So read it out loud is a very good one. Now, we don't have time to go through all 10, but you can have a look at all 10 in the post, Second Draft Syndrome, 10 Tips for editing your own work. We'll put the link in the show notes, but they are, this is on the Writer Center blog. Um, so just go to writercenter.com.au slash blog. Now you have a good link for us from text publishing, right, Al? Yeah, they have a new blog series happening at textpublishing.com.au and text publishing mm. is obviously um, one of Australia's, um, you know, uh, leading publishers and they have um they were the three the three-time winner of small publisher of the year so there you go they do yeah. some really good quality stuff and they run some great yes. competitions so it's definitely worth having a look at what they're doing um but they've written a post called five reasons why good writing gets rejected and i think it's really worth having a read um if you're at the point of getting ready to submit to publishers because it you know the thing is and any publisher will tell you this, that they have to pass on great stuff sometimes. Yes. And it's really worth knowing why that might be happening um, to just to kind of like A, give you some perspective on why you may have been rejected or B, help you. Was that one and B? Anyway, whatever. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Help you to kind of like make sure, give yourself the best possible, you know, opportunity as to why, you know, to get yourself over the line. Um, Mm. And the first one, the number one thing that they say is that the work doesn't follow submission guidelines. So, 
you know, you might send the best possible, you know, picture book in the whole history of the world through to text publishing, but they don't publish picture books. So they're not going to, so you're going to get rejected. You need to make sure that when you are looking for a publisher, that you are looking for a publisher who is looking for you because they're not all looking for the same things, you know, and they don't, like every publisher in the world doesn't publish every kind of book in the world. So make sure that, you know, that your your guide that you're you're there with the guidelines with formatting and presentation that you're yeah. sending in the best possible version of your work to a publisher who publishes what you know you're writing um so look for the things like don't shoot yourself in the foot before you even start i guess is the first you know would be the first tip yeah. um the other thing is that they, the second thing they say is that it doesn't work with the rest of their list, mm. um, that they are working, you know, at least 12 to 18 months ahead. They have X number of books per month. In the case of text publishing, they publish around 10 books a month, uh, sometimes fewer. The list mm-hmm. covers adult fiction, nonfiction and children's books. So they're only publishing a couple of things in each category every month. So you kind of have to have a look at, you know, when they look at your manuscript, they're thinking about where it fits in relation to everything else that they're planning on publishing. So if they've already just acquired a book in your sort of area, in your genre, in your topic area, they may just not have room for for what it is that you're writing. So um, it's it's a good idea to have a look at the books that they've published recently, like recently in the last 12 months um, to have a look and see how your book might fit alongside them and whether or not they've only just published something that's quite similar to what you're doing. Um, So, you know, that's something else to keep an eye on. You know, it's, I guess it's like, it's, it's, it's almost like, yes, you've written the book and now the journey of looking for the publisher begins and it takes a huge amount of research to Mm. make sure that you're giving your book the best possible chance. Yes, I love one of the um uh things. One of the reasons is we just didn't fall in love with it. <laughs> it's like <laughs> he's just not that into you, you know. Yeah, it's not yeah. you, and it's I, me. <laughs> I, and I think that that's something that's just really worth. Um, and again, it, that's really hard because you yes. love your book. Yes, um, of but it's so subjective. And mm. the reason, and the reason that that's probably an important lesson to learn is that just because they didn't fall in love with it doesn't mean that a publisher at another publishing house won't fall in love with it. So, you know, this is why um, rejection is one of those things that is incredibly difficult to take but also part of the process because it's, you know, it's it's an incredibly subjective thing. Like as they say, you know, what's your least favourite classic? Is there a bestseller you just didn't think was worth the hype? Like personal taste comes into it um, and that's, you know, that's just the way it goes. So if you're looking for you know, someone to send your book to, it's always worth having a look at the acknowledgements in the back of books that you love, that you think are similar to yours, because Mm. you want to send your book to someone who loves similar stuff to what you're writing. Yep, absolutely. All right, so let's move on to our competition this week. This is really cool. We have, I'm sure this is going to go off for Christmas. Um, We have three copies of 2020 Dictionary by Dominic Knight, (laughs) from the best-selling author of Strayopedia, (laughs) comes the definitive dictionary of the year the world went to poop. From bushfires to floods, from a recession to a global pandemic, and then Kanye West's presidential bid, 2020 was a terrible year, but it was also the year we all watched Hamilton, baked sourdough, had dinner parties on Zoom, And drank lots. Okay, so maybe the drinking pit wasn't that great either. But at the end of a year of trauma, but also great togetherness and community spirit, though mostly trauma, it's time to look back at the year that was and laugh about it all. The 2020 Dictionary contains everything we learned this year, helpfully collected in alphabetical order and with jokes. So... (laughs) The 2020 Dictionary by Dominic Knight. Uh, We have three copies that you can have a chance to win. So just go to writercentre.com.au slash win. Entries close the 7th of December. That's writercentre.com.au slash win. Now, Al, are you ready for the word of the week? (sighs) Frankly, I'm braced for the word of the week. Good. Braced. So... 
nibbling. Now, I'm not referring to the nibbling like what the mouse does to the cheese. That's N-I-B-B-L-I-N-G. I'm talking about nibbling N-I-B-L-I-N-G. Right. No, it sounds like, you know, one of those crazy little cuts of turkey that you get, you know, like with frozen and it's like manufactured into a little turkey leg shape or something. Like that's what it sounds like to me. I'm assuming that's not what it is. No, but that's interesting that you say that because I can kind of see what you what you mean. Can you see that? Can you see the yes. box in the freezer? I can. I, can. I fully can. Maybe we're onto something. Maybe we should. Yes. <laughs> All Market right, so turkey nibblings. <laughs> nibbling with one B. Uh, according to the Macquarie Dictionary, a nibbling is a niece or a nephew, kind of like siblings. Your nieces and nephews are your nibblings. Huh. Seriously? Yes, it's in the Macquarie Dictionary. So Can't you could be. say the Teenage Creative Writers course, which is Alison teaches that, is the perfect Christmas gift for my nibblings. Nibbling. Does that, does that mean your cousins are your kiblings? Oh, no, they're your cousins. <laughs> well, they should be kiblings. I mean, just following that convention. Well, maybe. I, I must look that up. But, yes, this week it's just nibbling. Cool, huh? Mm. Yeah, well, well that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that, <laughs> that was... other great Australian phrase, yeah, nah. Yeah, nah. That's my favorite. I've got to say it is actually one of my favorites. Oh, you hear it all the time. I love it. Especially when you watch And you can also do nah, yeah, which is (laughs) equally (laughs) awesome. And Alison is having a coughing attack. So um, anyway, that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1. This course is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Have a listen to Tanya Blanchard. It was really important for me to become a published author, particularly because of this story that I've written, The Girl from Munich. It's a story really close to my heart. It's a story of my German grandmother and growing up during World War II and what happened to her. So the fact that I was published with her story, first and foremost, is something very exciting and very meaningful to me. The course has had such an impact on my life and on my writing, on my life, because I've always dreamed of one day becoming published and never imagined it was possible. But after doing the course, I realised that it was something that was definitely attainable and I was able to work towards that. As far as my writing goes, it improved my writing dramatically. It gave me so much more confidence that I could write. I had the skills behind me to do it now. And that meant that I could work faster and harder and and just get the work done. And I've got so many more ideas of things that I can do now. And I just can't wait to to write more. I write full time now. It's absolutely amazing that I'm able to do that. I would absolutely recommend one of the courses to anyone. If you're a writer or aspiring writer, go and do it. I wouldn't be sitting here without these courses that I've done. The skills that I've learnt have helped me along my journey and I'm now sitting here with a published book in my hands and I never thought that this was possible and it's because of these courses. Take it from me. Go and do it. You won't regret it. If you'd like to find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. All right, so let's move on to our writer in residence. Who is it this week, Al? Well, I had the, a delightful, delightful chat with Meg Keneally about her um, latest uh, historical fiction, um, historical novel, but also about the fact that she co-authors books with her dad, mm. who is Tom Keneally. Yes. And we had a very funny conversation about what it's like to co-author anything with Tom, with Tom <laughs> Keneally. Um, so, yeah, enjoy. Meg Keneally is an Australian novelist. She is the co-author with her father, Tom Keneally, of the Montserrat series of historical crime novels. Her first solo novel, Fled, was published in 2019, and her new novel, The Wreck, is out now with Echo Publishing. Welcome to the program, Meg. Thanks for having me. All right, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning because that's where we like to start. We like a good structured interview. Indeed. Um, 
<laughs> writing is, I mean, your your father is Tom Keneally, beloved by many. Um, writing is obviously something that you've always known about. But when did you first start writing yourself? Well, I first started writing really when I was a kid. I had, you know, stacks of notebooks that I scribbled in. But in terms of writing novels, uh, when my... Uh, when I was pregnant with my first child, which was 20 years ago, um, I, <laughs> I had a crack at writing a novel, uh, wasn't able to get it published, um, tried again, wasn't able to get that one published. And then I thought, well, I obviously just don't got it and put it aside uh, for a while, um, uh, but then came back to it when I was drawn in, drawn back into the... Uh, um, allured back into this space by my by my father. So having watched your dad like mm. write things for all of those years, um, do you, did you get a certain sense of what being a writer was all about from him? And has it has being a writer yourself been the same experience? If you understand what I'm saying. Um, yeah, it's it's really interesting because sometimes you know I'll say something to mum and dad about, um, you know, I think the other day I said, you know, it's funny when, when I've had a good day writing everything, the sun just seems a bit brighter and the birds seem to sing more sweetly. And mum got up from the table and said, the pair of you are insufferable <laughs> because <it's, laughs> I think it's something she has heard a great many times before. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, it was, Interesting because he has a very strong work ethic and so he would go into his office and it seemed like a country only he could visit, you know, this mm. uh, this writing thing. But uh, he, he was very generous, you know, I, I can always ask him any questions I want about writing and have always been able to and we've always shared stories and a love of reading and a love of books. Um, but I think growing up with a published writer in the family taught me one important thing, which is that mortals can actually do it. Um, <laughs> and that. I'm a bit of a fangirl. I mean, when I meet a writer I admire, um, I start blathering and then I realise how much I'm blathering and get all tongue-tied and then I run away. So if I hadn't had an example in my own family uh, of an actual flesh and blood human who could actually write, I would have thought you know, that they were all gods and it was all beyond me. So uh, seeing that um, uh, the person who gave me piggyback rides uh, was able to write and get published and have a successful career at it showed me that it could be done. You actually began your writing career in, like, public relations and, and journalism that, mm. uh, in the, the sort of, like, those early days. And how do you think that that sort of, impacts on your novels today like um and why do you think you went down that road rather than just deciding to write a novel at 18 well um i don't think i was cooked at 18 no. <laughs> i wasn't i wasn't ready and i firmly believe now you know those those rejections that i had in the past stung like crazy at the time but mm. I think they were actually important and good because they showed me that I wasn't you know that when I was published it wasn't just on my surname and they they also weren't published because they just weren't good enough so mm. uh, I'm grateful now um, that they weren't but um, I the, the reason I went into um, journalism and then corporate affairs is I just have always really loved playing with playing with words and there are obviously limits to uh, how far you can take that in a corporate setting or in a journalism setting but I've always been really curious about people. I'm endlessly fascinated by people, their motivations, why they do what they do, why they think what they think and being a journalist lets you ask those questions without being rude, you know. Uh, I mean I'm a natural sticky beak so journalism was the perfect profession for me. I was a professional sticky beak, um, so that suited me extremely well. Do you think that you, like the, the those sorts of things and, and asking those questions and really getting to the why of things, you know, of why people do things, because that's one of the things I also mm. loved about journalism, just quietly. Um, <laughs> how, like, what, what do you think that taught you about how to go about creating, you know, your novels? 
Um, I think it had two two specifically really important uh, impacts. First of all, um, it taught me about research. It taught me how to research. It taught me how to dig and dig and dig. Um, secondly, it taught me how to work to a deadline. Yeah. Uh, not that I always hit my deadlines, unfortunately, but uh, but it did sort of automatically instill in me this idea that, all right, your goal for today is this many thousand words or however many I've set for myself that day. Uh, and... Uh, I'm just conditioned to do to move heaven and earth to meet a deadline mm. uh, by all of those um, all of those years in journalism. As I said, it doesn't always happen, but uh, but I do think it it trained me to be deadline oriented like that, which is just as well because if I wasn't, I'd probably think oh, I need to fold the laundry, so I better go and do that before <laughs> I sit down and start writing. Um, yeah, and then the day you. goes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you said that um, you tried writing a couple of novels, that that didn't really mm-hmm. happen. You put it aside thinking you didn't have it. Um, and then you were lured back in um, by your father. Now, mm-hmm. can you tell us a bit about how that came about and also about the process that the two of you use when you're writing together? Like, did he come to you and say, I think we should write a book together? Or did you come up with an idea? Or how did that work? He came to me. Uh, and he said, um, uh, I want to write a series of stories about a, a, a colonial era detective who's a gentleman convict, but I don't have time and it's not really my thing. But I've done 30,000 words of a first draft, so why <laughs> it's don't... It's not really my thing. Here are 30,000 words. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I mean, he's he's so prolific. He just yeah. writes as easily as he breathes. Um uh, so he said, do you want to work on this with me? And I went, oh, really? Do you think I can? And he said, look, you're one of the most stubborn people I have ever met in my life. So I know that if you decide you're going to do this, you'll keep doing it until it's done. And I said, Dad, I prefer determined. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> also gifted. Thanks very much. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so, uh, so we had a go at it. Initially, we were going to write alternate chapters. Uh, and perhaps one chapter from Montserrat's perspective and the next from Mrs Mulrooney's perspective. But structurally that didn't work. And also um, we found that when we were writing together, our voices are very, very different and oh. it just wasn't consistent enough. So what we ended up deciding to do is we plot them out together and then I go away and write um, two drafts usually because I wouldn't even show him my first draft. My first drafts are always appalling. Um, uh, and uh, then, you know, I'm in constant contact with him throughout the process, sending him snippets, saying, what do you think of this? Uh, and uh, and then we, we edit it together um, and rewrite together. And people never believe me when I say we don't fight, but we don't um, really? because... Yeah, yeah. You would think that there would be flung pages and slammed doors, and I can't work like this, and you know, <laughs> so on and so forth. But but no, um, we're both too passive aggressive, I think. So that's... All right, I see. <laughs> so it's been a terrific experience uh, to sort of enter this process with him, which for so long in my life was his process. You know, it's been wonderful to share that with him. I'd imagine it would be quite, um, particularly the first one you did, would probably have been quite a masterclass in editing like, for story structure, et cetera, as well, in the sense that, um, you know, it was essentially your first novel, but he has done mm-hmm. so many and done them so incredibly well. But have there ever yeah. been times where you've got to tell him that sections aren't working? I mean, I'd imagine that's quite difficult to say, listen, Tom Keneally, this is not right. <laughs> Yeah, can you take your Booker Prize and your two miles, Franklin, and go and sit over there in the corner? Take all of those prizes and go and rewrite this section, please. Yes, exactly. Um, You know, sometimes when I was rewriting his stuff, it did feel a bit like I was finger-painting over a Da Vinci. Um, uh, I never really have had to say to him, look, I just don't think it's working this way. Mm. Um, uh, And... Whenever we had ha- have had disagreements, I um, I was kind of the view that his Booker Prize and Two Miles Franklin's gave him the right to 
to, yeah. the, to the final vote. Yeah, so, yeah. so for me, it was more like, you know, being able to look through his eyes under the bonnet, being able to look at the technical aspects of a story, the machinery that's grinding away in the background to create this story, to create these characters. And just seeing him with, you know, the slash of a pen create different layers of nuance and meaning um, in things. You know, he'd say, oh, this is great. Now, why don't we also say that... I'm like, yes, why don't we do that? Because that's just made it 100% better. Um, <laughs> so it was a terrific, terrific opportunity so, to, to get to watch that. So how many of those did you write before you embarked upon writing Fled, which is your first solo novel, um, which came out in 2019? Um, I started writing Fled after the second Montserrat book mm-hmm. and then put it aside to write the third Montserrat book and then picked it up again. Um, all in all, I think if I if I added the time together, it was probably about a year and three months from um, uh, from go to woe, uh, and then uh, uh, I submitted it in 2017, and for various reasons, it it, it wasn't published. Uh, for, for for two years and came out last year, so um, yeah, so it was an interesting process, sort of going from Montserrat to Jenny and mm. and and back again. Uh, but I just felt so grateful because when I was writing Fled, I really missed Montserrat and Mrs Mulrooney, and when I was writing Montserrat and Mrs Mulrooney, I, I really missed Jenny, and so I thought, well, if I'm having these emotional reactions to these characters that hopefully means that they're okay and that they're working and that they're doing what they need to do. So when you got to, like when you finished that novel, Fled, Mm. and if you were to look at that as your first solo novel, um, compared to those two manuscripts that you had written, you know, all of those years prior that hadn't gone anywhere, Mm -hmm. what do you think was the difference? Like what do you think you brought to Fled that you hadn't managed to quite, you know, get right in those first two novels? I think um, I learned a lot, read a lot, did a lot of did a lot of courses as we, as we all do. You know, we writing tragics, we're always trying to do courses and so on, aren't we? Um, uh, and uh, I decided that the approach needed to be, and this is counterintuitive, but I thought I really need to approach this in a mechanical way because while writing is a very individualistic thing, there are some things that work most of the time. And there are rules which are made to be broken, but it takes a bit of skill to break them. Mm. So I thought, uh, um, so while there are no hard and fast rules, there are things that work more often than, than not. So I decided to structure it very carefully. Yeah. And fortunately, Mary Bryant's story fell naturally into three acts anyway, and I firmly believe that we're hardwired as a species to consume stories in three acts. Um and uh, uh, so I structured it with various, you know, uh, stepping stones along the way within each, you know, little mini structures within the larger structures. But the most important thing was um, characterization for me. I think those earlier novels, part of the issue with them was that my characters were a little too passive. Mm. Um, and since, since then, I've... Uh, when I read things by um, newer writers um, who've, who've done me the honour of showing me their work, often the only thing wrong with them is that the character is too passive. Mm. Uh, the character's standing in the middle of the action, the action's swirling around them, things are happening to them, but they're not acting on the plot in any way. Yeah. Uh, and I think that was that was a big issue with my first two as well. And fortunately, with a character like Jenny, who's based on Mary Bryant, you know, she can't help but be an active character. Yeah. She's just, it's in her DNA. And I made sure that when there were times when things happened to her that were beyond her control, that she at least tried to act on the plot in some way that she at least tried to do something she's like okay I'm in a convict ship and I'm going to Australia and there's not much I can I can do about that but I can try to get a letter home to my mother for example yeah so I made sure she always had a narrative job to do and I made sure that every character 
uh, earned their place on the page. And I think that's really important too. Every character needs a, a, a narrative job to do, otherwise they're just cardboard cutouts. So, um, so that's a, that was a big difference in the way I thought about writing from those first novels um, to uh, to now. Uh, and I do think that those two things really, really helped. Mm, that makes perfect sense. So let's now talk about your brand new novel, um, The Wreck. So yep. how about you tell us a bit about it and where the story came from? Well, The Wreck is um, has an entirely fictional protagonist, unlike Fled. Um, and I really wanted to write about four aspects of history. One was the Peterloo Massacre, which mm -hmm. occurred in Manchester in 1819, uh, when 60,000 people were listening to a talk on parliamentary reform and the magistrates got so nervous about the possibility of a rebellion that they sent in the Hussars and... Um, by the end of the day, 20 people were dead and several hundred wounded. Yeah. Uh, another was the Cato Street Conspiracy, which was a plot to overthrow the British government. The third was the wreck of the Dunbar, just off the, re just off, um, the gap in mm -hmm. Sydney. Um, New South Wales' deadliest maritime disaster with one survivor, and that's a shipwreck which has always fascinated me. And the fourth was the uh, horse thief on your $20 note, Mary <laughs> Reby. Um, <laughs> So, and she's always been a figure of fascination for me because uh, I've always wondered what it must have taken to build the successful business she built um, to the point where she could buy and sell most other people except possibly the MacArthur's, uh, having started out as a convict and also being a female in that world. So I wanted to find a story which would tie all of those together and it was something I was rolling around in my head for a long, long time. Just, you know, these four elements kept nudging at me and niggling at me and I thought, do I have I got four separate books here? Mm -hmm. um, but they kind of all felt related to one another even though they're really not, although the Cato Street Conspiracy is kind of related to Peterloo. So I created a character... Uh, to thread all of those together in the form of Sarah McCaffrey, who's a young Manchester mill, walker, mill worker who loses her parents at the Peterloo Massacre and is then radicalised. She starts out as mildly disaffected, but when you see your parents lying dead on the ground when all they were doing was attending a peaceful protest, uh, you tend to get quite angry, uh, and uh, she is approached after her parents' death she and her brother, by someone who sees them as prime candidates for radicalisation and involves mm. them in this plot. Um, the plot goes awry. Um, Sarah escapes. Her brother is hanged. She finds her way onto a ship called the Serpent and uh, uh, escapes to New South Wales. But just as they're about to arrive, the ship smashes into a cliff. She wakes up in a hospital where she's taken under the, under the wing of... Mary Reby, and she tries to seek out other radicals in New South Wales, hoping to mount another attack on the government from New South Wales. But through Mary Reby's mentorship, she gradually comes to see that there are other ways to go about things. So that's it in a nutshell, a very long-winded nutshell. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's what. Did you... Given that you've got these four disparate things and you create this character, uh, you create Sarah, do you, was this, did you approach this like fled? Was this um, like structural, like this was a structural kind of, this is how this is going to work? Like, and did you use the historic events to help kind of work out that timeline and that structure? Or do you create the character of Sarah and then follow her through those things? Uh, they, they kind of all blended together. I kind of thought, all right, Peterloo, what kind of people would have been at the Peterloo Massacre? Well, a lot of them would have worked in cotton mills. Yeah. Um, uh, and then I started looking into the conditions in cotton mills and researching Luddites and all of that sort of thing and thought, well, this is a really good basis on which to um, to build a character. Um, uh, and so, and then she just sort of stepped into my head fully formed after I'd been thinking about that for a little while, um, about the personality of a person who... Uh, is so passionate that when the passion turns to anger and hatred, it can make them quite dangerous. But when the passion turns to constructive things, they can really change the world as well. Mm. Uh, and she sort of stepped into my head like that. And I kept on 
applying the same rules that I applied when I was writing Fled. Whenever she, I'm quite a timid person, so I have to always guard against writing passive characters. And whenever Sarah was standing in the middle of this swirl of events and not really doing anything about it, I made her her do stuff. And um, my editor, Kate Goldsworthy, who's an absolute legend, uh, also was really helpful in saying, okay, well, she needs to have... I, I think in this particular section she needs a bit more agency, for example. Mm. Uh, and having that second pair of eyes was really useful as well. So I just kept thinking to myself, agency, agency, agency. Your characters have to have, you know, they have to have stuff to do uh, that actually moves the plot forward. Um, and in terms of structure, um, the book is in two parts, but it's actually, uh, I think, structured in three acts as well. There's her time in London, there's her time at sea, and then there's her, her time in the in the colony. Uh, and within each of those sections, there are rising and falling story arcs as well, um, uh, sort of stepping stones from the beginning of the section to the end. Um, and I tend to try to write different sections like that as though they are self-contained stories. Not as though they can be read as self-contained stories, but they have to have... A completeness to them, a uh, you know, a, a loose ends that are tied off, mm. um, an arc that rises and falls and brings you to a conclusion, even though they're parts of a of a broader story. So yeah, so that was what I brought from my experience of, of writing Fled to to writing The Wreck. So uh, you've mentioned several times, you know, thinking time. So the thinking time mm. is actually quite an important part of your process, obviously. And I'm just yeah. wondering. Do you, with your historical research, is is it something that you do all up front before you begin writing uh, as part of this kind of thinking and, and building time? Um, it's uh, Yes and no. I do the broader reading beforehand. So the reading on the period, the stuff that's going to give me the context. Because I think when it comes down to sitting down to actually write, you have to be familiar enough with the world you're talking about to be able to slip through the wormhole into that world at will. Yeah. Um, but then when it comes to specifics, so for example, uh, when I came to writing about, just for the sake of an example, the Cato Street conspiracy, I knew, already knew the broader context. So I knew the societal forces at work. And then when I was writing that, I was drilling down into the individual stories of the rebels, um, why they did what they did, what their influences were, and that sort of thing. Uh, as I'm as as I was as I was writing at the same time, so bit of reading, bit of writing, bit of reading, bit of writing, um, and I find that that a good process for me personally for two reasons. First of all, my poor little brain can't hold all the information at once. Uh, so that's why I like to do it in, in chunks. But I do think it brings an immediacy to it as well. Mm. Um, uh, when you're reading about something and then pretty much in the same day or the same week weaving it into a story. The um, the description of the wreck of the serpent is very vivid. Um, and oh, I... <laughs> Welcome. I read that you have um, like a real interest in in maritime history. So I'm just mm. wondering, like, where that comes from, and whether do you think that the reading that you've done in that area makes it kind of you know a part, an easier part of the process to recapture what it might have been like to go down on a ship like this? Yeah, I think it. I think I think it ha It does make it easier, and I think what also makes it easier is that. Um, I've spent a reasonable amount of time on a small boat when I was a scuba diving instructor. Yeah, uh, that was going to which... be my next question. <laughs> <laughs> and while it's not an analogous experience, you do have the sort of muscle memory of having to having to crouch and use your legs as shock, shock, shock absor absorbers when the when mm. when the boat's climbing a wave and you know it's going to crash down soon, or the feeling of that rocking that you get. And um, as a diver as well, I've also dived many, many times on the site of the Dunbar, um, mm. the, the real wreck on which uh, the wreck of the serpent is based, even though it happened a few decades after the serpent. So there was that. There was that indefinable fact, you know, that indefinable influence of the fact that I've kind of experience something vaguely like it and can therefore extrapolate. But also, um, 
definitely the the reading that I've done around maritime archaeology and around the Dunbar mm. was certainly useful in pu- pulling um, the wreck of the serpent together, even though it didn't happen exactly as the Dunbar did. It gave me a sense of the kind of things which might potentially happen yeah. uh, when a ship runs into a cliff. And I also did a maritime archaeology course. Oh. Uh, the National Maritime Museum, and they brought out this tray of artefacts which divers had found over the years on the site of where the Dunbar went down. Uh, And there were... I was shocked to see these bolts, which were like maybe two centimetres across, absolutely bent into S's from the force of the ship connecting with the cliff. Um, And that really brought it home to me how violent... An experience this must have been and when I read first-hand accounts of people who had uh, seen the aftermath of the Dunbar it was incredibly violent mm. bodies were ripped apart mm. you know they were just there were torsos floating into the harbour it was just an extraordinary extraordinary cataclysmic event particularly in a town the size of Sydney at the time uh, so so yeah all of that reading definitely did help with uh, with getting a sense of what it would be like to be on a ship which runs into a cliff although obviously it's not an experience I'd like to have in real no, in no, real life we can all forego that one I think yeah, exactly <laughs> Um, Switching gears a little bit, your bio says that you work in corporate affairs and you also have a family. Um, So, you know, you're fitting in the writing of your novels as well as the Montserrat series. Um, Now, you spoke about deadlines and you talked about, you know, the importance of of that sort of uh, journalism, you know, as far as getting getting the words down. But do you have a set, like, time? Do you, like, sit down at a certain time each day? How do you actually get the words written? Um, it's, it's not a certain time so much because, uh, my various jobs tend to, tend to be, um, a bit fluid in terms of what time I'm, you know, what, at what time I need to do what. Um, so I make a different plan every day based on what's on that day. Uh, and I build obviously writing into that because the thing about it is you kind of do have to treat it as a job. Um, otherwise nothing gets done, or at least I do because I am a world-class procrastinator and I have to constantly um, <laughs> guard against that. Uh, and it's just a matter of structure, of structuring the time in um, and of, you know, we've all, working from home as I have done for years and I think the broader world is now discovering the joys of working from home and a lot of people find that they miss that transition that comes with commuting yeah. from home time to work time and because I've worked at home for so long I've got my own little transitions and it is quite powerful to go all right I'm in the living room so this means it's relaxing time or it's getting ready time and now I am dressed and sitting at my desk with a cup of coffee and this means it's work time Mm. Uh, so it's just all of those little using all those little subconscious cues um and the one piece of advice I give to anyone who's newly working from home, get dressed. Yes. Don't stay in your pyjamas. <laughs> oh, yeah. I learned that very early on as a freelance uh, a freelance journalist working from home. Yeah. It was like, if I do not get out of my pyjamas, I will never get anything done. Um, yeah, absolutely. And what sorts of things do you do pr- to promote your work? Are you active on social media and stuff? Or do you gen- ten- generally tend to kind of do the save the promotion for when the book comes out? Oh, I, I, I'm... Yeah, I'm on social media, and you know, I use all of those avenues, all of the avenues that I can to um, uh, to get the word out there, as we all do, and as we all must in in this time when you know we're not doing writers' festivals and uh, book events and library talks and that sort of thing. Um, uh, I um, yeah, it's just it, it's it's a tough time for the publishing industry as it is for a great many industries, but I just keep clinging on to the idea that this book will find its way into readers' hands eventually. It probably won't do it as quickly as it would have without the pandemic, but um, I'm hoping that uh, uh, it will eventually reach the people who who will enjoy it, Um, and I certainly hope they do. I'm too close to it to know. Um, (laughs) I'm sure they will. (laughs) You can never assess your own work, can you? (laughs) No. Or proofread it. 
No, but I'm sure they will. Um, oh. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I hope the wreck goes gangbusters for you. Um, and we're going to finish up with our last question that we ask all of our authors in residence, and that is uh, for your three top tips for writers. Okay. So tip number one, momentum is everything, um, for me at least. Uh, I find that if I don't do something every single day, seven days a week towards the project that I'm working on, uh, I tend to run out of steam. And of course, there are going to be days when you're not feeling particularly creative or there are going to be days when you're tired or when you have other commitments. Um, and it doesn't have to be a big chunk of time if you've got a particularly busy day or if you're not well or if, you know, the cat needs to go to the vet or whatever it is. Do something that you're going to have to do at some point anyway, like proofread or chase down some research. It doesn't necessarily need to be writing, uh, but you do need to do something every day. Um, and related to that uh, is the idea of uh, my second tip, um, not uh, overthinking things and just getting the words on the page mm. um, because quite often, and I was, I've been prey to this as well, you think, is this any good? Are people going to like it? Am I am I doing this wrong? Um, and you get so wrapped up in editing as you write that you grind to a halt. Um, with the first draft, it's really important, I think, not to edit yourself as you write. Just get the words down there because you can't edit um, a blank screen. Uh, and that in itself builds momentum and you quickly get to the point where you think, oh, well, I've written X many words now, so I can't, I can't leave it now. I can't abandon it now. I've, I've invested too much in it. And getting to that point as quickly as possible is a really, uh, really good guard against um, throwing in the towel, as we all sometimes want to do. Uh, and the third one is my sort of yardstick for building characters. I have to know three things about um, every character that I write and make sure that I know them intimately, which is what they love, what they fear and what they want, as in what they really want, not what they think they want or what they appear to superficially want, but what is really driving them. Uh, and if you can answer those questions and if you spend a bit of time interrogating yourself about the answers to those questions, it automatically leads to characters which are more fleshed out and it leads you through the story as well because that last one, what they want, is what's going to drag your character through the story so that you can torture them as we like to do and throw up obstacle after obstacle that they have to overcome. Torturing characters is fun. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not for them, but for us it is. Yes, All right. Well, thank you so much, Meg Keneally. Um, your new book, The Wreck, is out now, and I hope that um, that people go out and have a look at it. Perfect for lovers of historical fiction. And um, best of luck uh, going forward with it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. There we go, Meg Keneally. I mean, gee, imagine being the... Um, daughter of Thomas Keneally. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's um, it's a, it's well, you know, and and as we discussed, not only being the daughter of Tom Keneally, but also, um, then choosing to to write novels together. You know, yes. like, and how you, I, I was just was trying to imagine how I would sit there and be like, well, I had this great idea, yeah. you know, to Tom Keneally. Oh, anyway, I guess when he's your dad, it's a whole nother world, isn't it? You yeah, know? I suppose. Yeah. Um, all right, so what are you doing in the coming week, Al, before we chat again? Uh, I don't know. I'm just getting on with it, really. I'm Much like everyone in the world, I think I'm just getting on with it and hoping to limp towards the end of the year without oh, too much gosh. damage. We've got a bit of a promotion going on in the Your Kids Next Read group, um, mm -hmm. which is like a 12 days of Christmas. You can pop in there and win heaps of you know, books, lots of kids' books to give away and stuff. So awesome. find us on Facebook if you're keen. Um, so we have that going on and, you know, yeah, just our stuff, yeah. hashtag our stuff. 
<laughs> it kind of encompasses a lot of stuff. What about you? What are you doing? Are you going anywhere apart from cronut shopping? No, I'll be in search for a replacement cronut. I'll be bracing myself to go to the local shopping centre without having to have a nap upon my return. Mm. And, um, yeah, I'm just in disbelief that we are in December. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of it really. <laughs> just very exciting. Aren't we? We're really going to have to do better than this. Otherwise our listeners, are, oh, they'll, they'll need a nap after listening to our podcast. Oh, you know what I'll be doing? I just got this book and I haven't read it yet, so I will report back. Mm. But um, it's called, now this is a normal word in its own right, so it's okay. Um, the book is called Rooted, <laughs> R-O-O-T-E-D, mm. An Australian History of Bad Language. <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> so, I look forward to hearing all about it. <laughs> yeah, so I think this is going to be really, really interesting. But, yes, I've just got that, so that's um, next on my list. All right, where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, or where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Of course, make sure you join the podcast listener community on Facebook. It's free to join. So many fantastic, wonderful, aspiring and established writers in there, all helping each other out. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook and uh, request to join. We'd love to have you in there. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.